Good evening and welcome again to our gospel meeting. We are so grateful for your presence. To those of you who may be visiting, we are so grateful that you have chosen to honor us with your presence tonight. We invite you back again tomorrow evening as well as Wednesday and Thursday evenings. We are very thankful to have the students from the Memphis School of Preaching with us this week. They have been canvassing the neighborhood today, and we are thankful for their efforts, for their love for the lost, and their willingness to help us raise the visibility of the church in this area. We appreciate Brother Billy Sasser leading our singing tonight. Brother Billy is a regular member here on Wednesday evenings. He preaches regularly on Sundays, but we're glad to have him with us on a regular basis on Wednesday nights, and we're very privileged to have him lead our singing tonight. We also are thankful to have Brother Ray Peters with us. We appreciate his willingness to lead us in prayer. Ray preaches for the Macon Church of Christ about 45 minutes or so from here. But we're glad you're here, and tonight... We are thankful to have Brother Keith Mosier with us. As many of you know, he had the opportunity to share three lessons with us yesterday. He did an outstanding job challenging us to become more committed to the work of the church and to the cause of Christ. And I appreciate so much my association with Brother Keith Mosier down through the years. It has been my privilege to know him since 1991. And I think about just the opportunity that I've had through the years to sit and to listen and to learn from his many years of study. And those of you that have had the opportunity to hear him teach or preach are certainly well aware of the great Bible knowledge that he has. And I appreciate the passion that he brings to teaching and preaching the gospel of Christ. And I am very appreciative for the many years of service that he has rendered at the Memphis School of preaching some 30 years, and the many students that have had the opportunity to sit at his feet and to learn invaluable truths. And so tonight we look forward to another lesson from the Word of God. We are very thankful for his friendship, for his fervency, and his faithfulness. And so at this time I'll turn our lesson over to Brother Keith Mosher. I'm glad you got to hear that, Dorothy. It was just the way I wrote it. Keep telling them just to say, here's Keith. That would be enough. One thing I would like for them to tell about me when I, they're introduced to me, how young and dynamic I am. But they, Brother Turner used to complain. All right. Brother Turner used to complain about that all the time. Nobody says I'm young and dynamic. But I was born before dirt was invented, so that's my problem. Have a helper down here tonight, one of our first-year students, Devin Dean, who has actually directed a lectureship several times out in Church, Texas. And I think he knows how to work this overhead, but we'll see. The guys use PowerPoint now, and they call this the Cro-Magnon PowerPoint. So I'm just old-fashioned, that's all. One of the most important pages in your Bible, if you'll open it, is blank. It's absolutely blank. It comes between the Old and the New Testament. Whenever I'm studying with someone, I show them that very most important page. It's just plain blank. There it is. It's a blank page, but it's telling us something. We have an old covenant and a new covenant. If I were buying seed, I wouldn't have uh, perhaps tomato seed or something, I would not look in a farmer's catalog under evergreen trees. I'd want to look at the place where it sold tomato seeds. 
same thing, in essence, is true of us. If I'm interested in salvation, where do I go? Which testament? Well, why is there a New Testament? Because he left it that way. The Old Testament was a mosaic dispensation. The New is the Christian dispensation. And that Old Covenant was fulfilled by the Christ. I think of the fulfillment of the Old Testament the way a bud becomes a rose. Once it becomes the rose, it doesn't look anything like the bud anymore. It replaces the bud, but it doesn't destroy the bud. Jesus did not destroy the law of Moses. He fulfilled it and placed us under a covenant we call the New Testament. Actually, better, a covenant. The problem is, when I approach this book, how should I read it? I may read about Noah's building an ark, but I'm not going to go out and build an ark, but it's in the Bible, and even the dimensions and the instructions are there. Am I supposed to go build one? How do I know I'm not? And so I need to learn how to establish Bible authority. This that we're going to do tonight, brothers and sisters, is least understood, even by us, on how to establish Bible authority. All right, let's look, first of all, the Bible method. Now, I underlined for you Ephesians 3 there, where Paul says, when we read what he wrote, we'll understand his knowledge in the very mystery of Christ. God has revealed all we need to know for our salvation. Paul said, just read it, and you'll understand it. But there, is a, there needs to be some further instruction here. Let's pull down that first one. Let's use God's method of establishing authority. First of all, in the Bible, we have direct statements. That is, there is a sentence where the action is real, and it's usually in the form of a declarative statement or a question. It could be a question. Uh, look at Mark 16, 16. Here's a statement, a direct statement in the Bible. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Sometimes it comes in the form of a question. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Romans 6, 1. But that's an explicit statement. I can understand it, know how to apply it, no question about it. It sometimes comes in the form of an oration. For instance, Hebrews 6.1 where he says, Let us not neglect so great salvation. So we have some direct statements in the Bible. Some of these direct statements are conditional. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Now that's in the form of a hypothetical statement. So it's conditional. You have to be risen with Christ to be able to do what he said. But we can understand it as a direct statement. No problem. Very few people have problems with this one. Direct statement. Uh, when there's a wish, for instance, that's a direct statement. The Greeks have a mood for wishing. They call it the optative mood. Uh, Paul said, I could wish myself a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, Romans 10, 1, or Romans 9, 1. So here is a direct statement. Could be in the form of a question, just a declarative statement sentence, or maybe it's a question, or it's a hypothetical, but it's explicit. And I hope you'll write the word explicit next to this one. Explicit. Easily understood. This next one is not so easily understood. All right? Now, I call it an approved example. An approved example. <coughs> if... If something is truly an example, brothers and sisters, 
There's an example of an unhappy child right there. If a, if a thing is an example, thank you very much. Have you been praying I'd get well because I haven't gotten well yet? Okay. I'm sorry, brother. We have to find out when a thing, when a thing is an example. Because all of the statements in the Bible are not examples. How do I establish whether something's an example? Because if it is an example, it's binding on us. If it is truly a Bible example, it's binding on us. But how do I know when a thing is an example? There has to be a command behind what those people did, and then we learn how they carried out that command. That's an example that's binding on us. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, and notice an example. An example, and it's binding on us. What did I say, 1 Corinthians? Chapter 11, concerning the Lord's Supper, verse 24 reads, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Now we don't know of a direct statement that says, Thou shalt take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. We do not have a direct statement like that. But those men who taught that, how did they do it? They knew they were supposed to do this in remembrance of him. What was their example? They gave us an example, and the, and the only example really, of how to do it because there was a command behind it. It's an example when you have a command behind it. And it must be done. Look at Acts 20, verses 6 and 7, for instance, where Paul had to wait seven days in order to come together with the brethren to break bread. That was his example. When did he come to break bread? Lord's Day. That's an approved example, and it's binding on us. Ask yourself the question as Brother Warren used to. When is an example binding? When it's an example. What is an example? I've got a command behind it, and here's how they carried it out, and so we know how to do it. That thing must be done. Well, some examples aren't things that must be done. But they could be done. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 8, for instance. Paul says, We do you to wit of the uh, Macedonian brethren, who in a great poverty gave. Well, that's a good example. We could do that, even in deep poverty. But certainly not a binding example. A binding example occurs when you have a command behind it, and this is the way they carried it out. And we need to understand that about the Bible. A binding example uh, some actions in the Bible are temporary, some are obligatory, but God establishes authority through approved examples. I don't like the way I wrote this one. If you'll scratch out necessary inference and put in implication, it will be more nearly correctly stated. This should read implication. Let's open to Mark 16, 16 a moment. Implication. What a direct statement implies is as authoritative as the direct statement. What a direct statement implies is as authoritative as the statement itself. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Do you know what I inferred from that? From that implication in that statement, I was baptized into Christ. 
My name's not there. It's not a direct statement. But the he is there, and that implies me. And so, by implication, we have the same authority as the direct statement. Otherwise, how do you read anything? What the Bible implies by a direct statement is as obligatory to us as the direct statement itself. It cannot be any other way. It cannot be done any other way. And so it is the case that I need to understand about implication. Very important. What did the Bible imply here? Uh, so many people tell me often, well, the Bible doesn't say we can't do that. What did the Bible imply? You know, there were two fellows in the Old Testament times who found out the hard way about that thing about implication. They were told to uh, put incense in their censers and fire thereon, but the Bible says they offered strange fire before the Lord. Listen to them now, which he commanded them not. I would challenge anyone in this audience who, who's listening on the network to find a verse in your Bible that says, Thou shalt not put strange fire on the old, on this incense. Find it. You can't. The, he didn't command it that way. He told them in a direct way to take the fire from the, old, the offer, altar of burnt offering. Where did they get it? I don't know. Cook fire or something. They got their fire in the wrong place. But where's the command that says, Don't take that strange fire? It's not there. And yet the Bible says God didn't command them to do it. Why? Because when he says to take it off the altar fire, that implies you better do that. And so Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord. Leviticus 10, 1 through 2. Let's get the next one. Oh, is this one not understood at all? Would you open your Bible to Matthew 15, please? Here's the greatest test of anyone's faith right here. You can't get your faith tested any greater than this. This is verse 21 of Matthew 15. And folks don't honor this. Even some of our own brethren don't honor this. The necessary idea about the silence of the scriptures is the greatest test of our faith. Watch what happens here. Verse 21. Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a demon. Now watch what your Bible says. But he answered her not a word. Did you know his apostles misinterpreted the silence? I know they did because they came up to him and said, Send her away. They took the silence to mean he wasn't interested in her. Actually, he was testing her faith. But they misinterpreted. And brothers and sisters and friends, it is a dangerous thing to misinterpret the silence of God. We establish Bible authority by the things God has never said. Those are the things we don't do. Nobody that I know that knows the Bible goes around saying, well, the Bible didn't say we couldn't do, it doesn't say we can't do that. We know better than that. And my children found out about that the hard way. When they were little, are there any spanking police here tonight? When they were little, I told them one day, I said, you play in the front yard. Do you know those little guys went out in the street and they got a spanking? And if they had been good denominational children, they would have said, but Daddy, you didn't say we couldn't go in the street. 
Yes, I did. And God speaks to us the same way. Look at Ephesians 5.19, for instance. How many times have you heard this argument? God said, sing, right? Speaking to yourselves in psalms, singing and making a melody in your heart to the Lord. Is that what he said? But Brother Moser, he didn't say we couldn't use an instrument. Yes, he did. He told us what he wanted. And like my little children who went in the street, when a guy plays an instrument, when God has not spoken on it, that guy's violating the commands of the Scripture. He's going against God. And what God has not said, we need to respect. And that is a way to establish authority then. We don't have it in the Bible, we don't do it. It's that simple. Some folks found out about that the hard way, I guess. Old Cain did. He was a good old boy, wasn't he? Cain was a good old boy. He worked all year long, got his groceries together, all of his vegetables that he'd been working hard, brought them to the Lord, and the Lord did not have respect for his offering. He did for Abel's. Why? Abel bought a meat offering, which is what you were supposed to do. Well, couldn't you see Cain standing there? You didn't say I couldn't bring my produce. Somebody told Abel, by faith, how to worship. Well, Cain got the same message. What did he try to do? Folks, when we read our Bibles, we have direct statements, examples, implication, and silence. We need to respect that. I'll give you some verses here now that will help you in studying this. But we have a command, for instance, in Matthew to go into all the world. We have a command in Mark to go into all the world. We have a command in Hebrews to assemble ourselves together. Those are all direct statements. Commands that we are to follow. But what does man do with it? Let's get the next one. Here's what man does with it. This is different from the Bible method. This is man's method. Man's method is speculative. He, uh, he reminds me of the fellow sitting around going, Oh, oh. He's trying to figure out what he has imagined his God is like. If you'll open your Bible to Psalm 50, verse 21, the Lord will comment on this. This is a statement about the wicked, who because judgment doesn't come quickly, they begin to think God's just like them. Now, we can't do that. We cannot make God in our image. This is his message. This Bible is his message, not mine. And I need to learn how to treat it and how to understand it and how to read it. Well, the speculator says, you know what? I've never seen a miracle. Seems like there's a lot of bad things going on in the world. And so he decides, yes, there's a God, but he's leaving us alone. He didn't really reveal himself to us. The deist, folks, denies the Bible altogether. He does not look to it at all. He might look to nature, but that's all. He's speculating. How about the dogmatic person? When we get an announcement from Rome that this is the way it is, that's dogmatism. And I don't listen to that because it's man's idea. Or we get those folks who try to transcend themselves. This is not a new problem. Look with me, please, at 2 Thessalonians 2. These people have been around since the 2nd century. 
We know them today as Gnostics. Gnostics. And it's the case that they have a strange way of approaching God. Paul said that in his day, this mystery was already at work. This uh, uh, wickedness was already at work. Well, I've lost the passage, folks. I'll find it in a minute. I'll just quote it. This person thinks himself to be God sitting in the seat of God and tries to decide for himself who God is. This Gnosticism is still around among us because the Gnostic believed that it was impossible for him to fall from grace. That it was impossible for him to lose his salvation. He just knew that, and that's why he was called a Gnostic. What passage am I looking for? Is it three? Well, I'm looking right at two, and I don't see it. Oh, I got it right here, verse four. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that, that's the first mistake I ever made in my life, too. Or that is worshipped so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Who is this fellow? Look at verse 7. He was already at work in Paul's day. The mystery of iniquity. The idea that there is a kind of, I'll tell you, a program that is on television that is fostered by this kind of thinking. It's called Touched by an Angel. That program is as Gnostic as it gets. That somehow there's a transcendent supernatural thing out here and it kind of touches me and envelops me and, and I know better than God does. Paul said that was already at work in my day. He was trying to hinder it. He said only he who now hinders it will let until he be taken out of the way. This idea that God is in me, Shirley MacLaine, she thinks of herself as a God. This is called New Ageism. It's all around us. It's on our television. It's on our radios. It's in our pulpits. And it's the case that it is man's speculative method. I don't want to go by the Bible. I want to go by what I think. Do you know that that problem's been around as long as man? Here were Adam and Eve, so glorious. What a great creation. Beautiful couple. I've often wondered if Adam ever said to Eve, am I the only one? Do you think he ever said that? I don't. Two beautiful people had everything they needed, right? Here they were in the Garden of Eden, wonderful, and there was a tree there. God said, don't eat of that tree. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Leave it alone. Somebody said to me one time, well, after they ate of the tree, then they knew the difference between right and wrong. I said, no, that's not correct. That's not what that tree is all about. Well, I knew. I told him, I said, well, they knew that it was wrong to eat of that tree before they ate of it. They knew the difference between right and wrong before they ate of that tree. What was it they wanted? They wanted the power to be their own gods. That's what God said. We better take it away or they'll be their own gods. In other words, I will decide what's right and wrong. And God is not going to tell me. And young people, you're hearing that day after day in your schools. Do, do, you, you, everything is relative. Nothing is objective standard. Nothing is absolutely right or absolutely wrong. I got a phone call from a mom one day in tears. Her child had come home with a bad report card that said, your daughter keeps saying things are wrong in my class. I said, tell your daughter to keep it up. 
back her up when she does it. Transcendental. What about the mystical? Don't you love this one? Some folks would rather go to the Maharishi than they would to the Christ. And now we have a problem in our country of something called Muslim, Islam, the so-called peaceful religion. It is transcendental. It is claiming supernaturalism. They know better than we do. Let's go to the next one. Isn't he good at that? Nobody said yes, Devin. I guess you know. Now let's look at this one a minute. You may have an account of action in your Bible that's not a matter of example. It's not a matter of, of uh, direct statement. It's just something that happened. For instance, when Paul got to Troas, they met in an upper room. That's an account of action. There's no command behind that to meet in an upper room. It's just something that's ob optional. Uh, it's something they told us that was going on, on uh, at the time. That's an account of action. Please separate that in your mind from an example. Now, number three, please separate something else in your mind from an example. We need to understand, and, and I hope there are some elders here tonight listening to this. We need to understand something about opinions among us. There's nobody in the church, brothers and sisters, who rules in the area of opinion, not even the eldership. And once an eldership starts that, they're lording it over God's heritage. Elders rule in an area called expediency. I don't, I don't think I included it up there. Expediency. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians 6.12 a moment. What is expediency? Well, you have a command. How do you carry it out? That's where elders rule. Paul said it wouldn't be expedient for him to do a certain thing, and so he didn't do it. He wouldn't do it because it would have offended people, as he talked about it in the sixth chapter there, about all of their terrible activities. But look at verse 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things aren't expedient. What's an expediency? Well, here's one. Where is the authority, brothers and sisters, for this church building? Can you find a verse that says, thou shalt have a church building? No. Where's the authority? Did the Bible say we should assemble together? It did. Still does. Hebrews 10.25. Well, who decides about how we're going to assemble together? That's a command. That's the eldership's job. That's exactly where they rule. When they've got a command, then they can expedite it. Did the, Lord, did the Bible say by example that we should meet on the Lord's day? Acts 20, verse 7. Absolutely. What time? Eldership decision. He didn't specify the time. In fact, I was born at 11 o'clock Sunday morning. I should have been in church, huh? Why? Because that's the time they set, 11 o'clock, I think, at that time. Isn't that the scriptural time? But you know what I found out about some of my brethren? They start ruling in the area of opinion. I was working with a group one time back in the hippie days, long hair and beards. These elders decided that anybody who had a beard and long hair couldn't wait on the Lord's table or lead a prayer. And I said, could I have the verse behind that, please? I said, what do you mean? I said, you've got me teaching here, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and shave. <laughs> That's serious. 
That's, that's where we get into trouble. Your opinion and my opinion don't matter. Elders, do you have a command that you're expediting? Then you don't have an area of rule. He calls that lording it, 1 Peter 5, over God's heritage. And so I need a command expedited. Otherwise, I have no authority at all. Look at uh, Galatians with me now. You can turn that overhead off if you'd like. What did I say, Galatians? Don't preach when you're sick, brethren. You can't even figure out what you're saying. Ephesians 4. And verse 6. Look at this. I have an idea everybody in this room will agree with what I'm about to say. Look at the chain of authority here. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. People who have respect for him know that he's over everything. They know that. But he sent his son to this earth. And just before the son of God and left this earth, he told 11 men on the side of Mount Olivet, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teach, baptizing and teaching them to, to obey all things which I have commanded you. For all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Now think about that a minute. All authority, does that mean that Jesus is over God? He said, in heaven and earth... Paul doesn't leave us in the dark on that one. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment. Paul tells us quite quickly that's not the case. Somebody was accepted from that command. Verse 27, 1 Corinthians 15. For he, the Father, hath put all things under his feet, the Son. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is made known that he, the Father, is accepted, which did put all things under him. And so, when it comes to my salvation, Christ is over me. And so I have God, who sent his Son. Now what did the Son do? How are we going to get that message and get it perfectly? Well, the Son left. Look at John 14 with me now. The Son left and left these commands in the hands of some men. Now that's a little dangerous, isn't it? You folks ever played the game called gossip? I don't mean when you're just normally doing things. I mean at a party. Nobody here gossips, do they? Except us preachers. John 14, look at this. You play that game where you whisper in somebody's ear and he keeps passing it down the line and it gets all mixed up. What if the apostles have been left to themselves trying to teach us this message? Look at John 14 with me now. And let's start in verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He's talking to the apostles. Verse 25 tells us, these things have I spoken unto being yet present with you. He's talking to the men around that table that night at the Last Supper. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, a paraclete. Brothers and sisters, I don't have time to preach on this tonight, but the Holy Spirit is not my comforter. This term comforter is used only of the apostles for a special reason. The comforter that I have is Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. 
He is my advocate. That's what this word means. He's my paraclete. He's my go-between. God and me. Not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, however, had a special job here. He's another just like Christ. Another of the same kind comforter. And he's coming to abide with you forever. Who is he, Jesus? The Spirit of truth. Now watch what he says. Whom the world cannot receive. That word receive is lambano. It means take by force. Why can't they take him by force? They're going to take the Son of God by force. They're going to hang the Son of God on a tree. They're going to crucify him. But this one they can't because they can't see him. Not only can't they see him, they don't even know him. But he says, you know him. Watch what he says now. Read it carefully. But you know him. How do they know him? He hasn't come yet. He says, he dwells with you. He's just like me, although he's in spirit form. That's quite expedient, isn't it? The Holy Spirit could be all over the brotherhood all at once. If Jesus stayed in bodily form, it wouldn't be very expedient. He'd have to travel on foot or ship or something. But this one who is in the spirit realm can't be seen, yet they, <coughs> yet they know him. Because he's just like Jesus. And what's he going to teach? He's going to teach them exactly what Jesus taught them while he was on earth. Look at John 16. Verse 13. He says, when that Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, folks, if he guided them into all truth, we don't have any more truth. Peter said it. He said he gave us all things that pertain to life and God in 2 Peter 1, 3. For he shall not speak of himself. He will not what? He shall not speak of himself. Let me make this statement as loudly and as clearly as I can. Any preacher, any religion that exalts the Holy Spirit is automatically a false religion. He is not allowed to speak of himself. He did not die on the cross for us. I love him. He is the third person in the Godhead. He's magnificent, but he is not our advocate, and he's not to be teaching himself. But most of the popular religions today are what? Holy Spirit religions. Well, what does the Holy Spirit do when his teaching is given to these apostles who are getting their authority from him? He says what he hears from the Father and Son, he'll speak that. He'll show you things to come and he will glorify me. There's the Holy Spirit's work to glorify the Christ, not himself. And so we have a kind of chain of authority. God's over all. Christ was given all authority, except over the Father. And the Christ passed on his authority through the apostles, guided directly by the Holy Spirit, and they ended up writing it down for us. So when I pick up my Bible, I'm reading God's mind. One last point. Look over at Romans 10, 17. I could go on for three more hours, but I'm going to quit. Don't say amen so loud. Uh, we have quoted this verse over and over and over again. Paul is discussing the fact that the Old Testament prophets had told the, the Gentiles for centuries that the Christ would come. Their sound, that is, of the Old Testament prophets went out to the whole world. 
And uh, they should have known that this Christ was coming. And that saving faith doesn't come by the Mosaic dispensation. He says, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, American Standard Version. I want you to concentrate on that statement, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word. I want you to underline that word, word. There are two different words in the Greek for word. One is L-O-G-O-S, logos. That's not the word here. Jesus was the logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and, the, and God was the logos. Well, he's... He's not using that term here. He's using a term that's spelled R-A-M-A, -A, and it's important. It's also used, this word is, in Ephesians 6:17. The sword of the Spirit is the frame of God. What does rhema mean? It means God's breathed message. That's why the Bible says at 2 Timothy 3:16, all scripture is given by God's breath. When I pick this book up, it's not a dead letter. It has the same power in it that God put in the nostrils of man. God breathed into his nostrils and man became a living soul. God breathed into this message. It's a living message. It's powerful and it is my authority. And I want it to be yours tonight too. If we can remember how to read it. Direct statement. Implication. Example. Expediency. Account of action. Five different areas I have to keep in mind when I'm reading my Bible. And it is the case that once I have read it correctly, you and I, and I, you read it correctly, we're going to understand it a lot. Years ago, a preacher named Samuel Rogers met a man named Jacob Kreth, senior. And Kreth was a, a kind of a hard-headed old fellow. So uh, Brother Rogers said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's start in Genesis 1. And we'll start reading through to the end of the Bible. And every verse that we come to where we don't agree, we'll mark it and come back to it later. Said when they got to Revelation, they never did mark one. My friends, this book, generally speaking, is written on a 12-year-old level. But how many people ignore it, leave it alone, and they're going to miss eternity, I'm afraid. Because this has a message for us. It has a direct statement. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. That implies if you're a he or a she, you should be baptized to be saved. We have examples of people doing that. Acts 8.37, a fellow got out of a chariot, went down into the water, came up out of the water. He went on his way rejoicing. He was immersed. There's your example of the command to be baptized. You need to follow it. It's binding on us that immersion is. Why was he baptized? For the remission of his sins. You mean the water took away his sins? Absolutely not. It's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's that point at which God takes away my sins. I get excited when I hear that. God takes away my sins when I come up out of that water? Why, that's nothing for me to do then, to allow someone to immerse me. Why is that so difficult? I don't know. But it's God's command. And he gave it to us in a direct statement. Ought not to uh, miss that one. Brother Peters prayed a while ago about the second law of pardon. There may be a brother or sister here tonight who needs our prayers. God wants you to do that if, if that's the case while we stand and while we sing.